52 pickup. <laughs> 52 pickup. That's a good Oh, my dad pulled that one on me when I was a kid. Hey, do you want to play 52 pickup? Yeah. <laughs> okay, pick him up and he walks away. <laughs> yeah, it <itch> it. <laughs> It's called parody. Yeah. <laughs> Read about it. Welcome to Tank Riot. I'm Victor, and with me tonight is Sputnik. Good day. And the original Onion Router, Tor. Hey. <laughs> onion Router? Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's a tech thing. Uh, today's topic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great douchebags of history. We're going to be discussing Harrison Ford. You got it wrong. No, that's <laughs> no, not right, man. No, no, it's uh, he's an archaeologist from the past. That's right. Well, okay, fine. <laughs> uh, it would be Henry Ford. Henry, Henry Ford. Henry the Hank Ford. However, there is a reason why you may be confused. If now you you may or may not be aware, but Harrison Ford has a new movie out, a new Indiana Jones movie. Oh, I was going to say Star and, Wars Seven. And in that movie. In the very first scene yeah. is a car. The very first car you see is a Ford V8, also known as a Ford Model B. Mm-hmm. So there's some Henry Ford trivia for you right off the bat. Oh, my God. In, in yeah. Temple of the Crystal Skullbong? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, great. And, 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 and it's a Ford V8 that has been converted to a hot rod. Which I think most of them have by now. Well, if it's in a Steven Spielberg film, I think it's required to be converted into some kind of hot rod. Right. Yes. And, and well, no, George Lucas. I, oh yeah, George Lucas. It, it's, oh, it's, a total, right. it's a total throwback to American Graffiti. Yeah. It's, it's hard to tell the two of them. Half apart, that movie right? was a throwback had, to American Graffiti. Yeah, who also had Harrison Ford. In yeah. The, was the license plate also say THX eleven thirty? Oh, I didn't look. That was a great movie. <laughs> 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 oh, I gotta say, um, that was not a very good movie. Did you see it? THX eleven thirty. No, no, no. The the latest Indiana Jones movie. I'm gonna go see it this weekend. Well, Shia LaBeouf, I was uh, I was not impressed with this film. I enjoyed it. You know, I want to see. I um, wanted to enjoy it. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. We we're, we have a split decision here. I'm <laughs> sorry, but you you have to tell me about what what movie. Uh, all the little movie homages throughout that film, and then how it was just one long chase scene all the way to the end with... Well, oh, that, I just want to see Kate... I got a serious thing for Kate Blanchett, and I just want to see her with the little page boy and yeah. the little spanky communist interrogator outfit. She, you so. know, she really did a good job with the accent and everything, too. So, Sweet. I mean, she couldn't speak Russian to save her life, but the accent was pretty hey, good, so she could study that. Sure. Karen Allen was great. I, I, I really enjoyed the film. I especially oh. enjoyed the first half. Okay. The second half is pretty much what you expect. Uh, chasing uh, archaeological site, bunch of stuff happened. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not but, gonna. But that's what you went there for. I mean, that's Indiana Jones. How was the Jones. kid? Was he really irritating? He was really irritating. Oh shit. He was really irritating. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. He... I don't know. He didn't bother me that much. Yeah. I mean, okay. uh, Compared to Jar Jar Binks, this guy is. <laughs> well, okay. You know. Yeah. You're setting the bar uh, kind of uh, high there. Tony. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know who I, I will say the one character, Phantom Menace produced for me my my favorite Star Wars character Watto, 
Yeah. The the flying uh, uh gravity defying bugman yeah, on bug, Tatooine. <laughs> bugman that was invulnerable to the Jedi mind <laughs> trick and if anyone should be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your yeah. Jedi tricks do not work on me. <laughs> oh god, we're nerding way too much. But speaking yeah. of that. Let me okay, go go ahead. Oh well I was gonna say Victor did a review of a movie that is now out on DVD, which which myself and Mrs. Sputnik watched last night and mrs sputnik was very involved in it too which of course is king of kong fistful of quarters oh i gotta say this this movie is really intriguing i loved it it's it's fantastic i haven't seen the dvd extras though and i heard that they're pretty good too oh god they really are they really are still have to rent so i highly recommend that it's out on dvd have fun with it because i think you were even saying too is that there are some really nerd cringing moments (laughs) but um it's 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 Really, kind of a uh, the story kind of grabs you in a weird way. Yeah, it's so it's a really moving story. Actually, it's yeah. strange. It's very strange. Um, I actually managed to see. Speaking of quadrilogies, I managed <laughs> to watch Rambo. Oh my God! How <laughs> the was movie that? you swore you wouldn't watch? The it, brand spanking new one. The brand spanking new one, number four in the Rambo series, is out yet. on DVD. And what? It, yeah, it just came out on DVD. Yeah. When was it in the theater? It came and went. If that tells you anything about the quality of the picture. Wow. Yeah, so if if the Indiana Jones film was just a derivative knockoff of Indiana Jones, this one was definite grindhouse B-movie material. Oh, really? It it should have had the camera skipping a little bit and and a little missing reel. (laughs) It would have fit in perfectly. I thought it was... So was it good, though? It was awesome in its B-movie aesthetic you got exactly what you got you got rambo being coerced into helping these poor innocent people and a band of mercenaries tagging along to help rambo classic it's classic 80s film i heard the violence was pretty intense oh the violence was way more than intense and you know on the on the tv screen it just the the special effects were totally see-through because everything that's digitally done uh, you know, it doesn't work as well on television. So I almost wish I would have seen it in the theater, but oh, cool. it was just gruesome. I mean, this had a death toll higher than, I don't know, have you some seen wars. Di- <laughs> have you seen Diary of the Dead yet? You know, not yet, not going yet. Going back to the, the zombie classics? Not yet. Okay. <clears throat> um. <laughs> but yes, movie, movie wrap-up. Yeah. So to get to Mr. Ford, the reason that we select him as one of the great American douchebags um, will be revealed as we kind of go into his life. And I know a lot of you are probably saying, as I did, I mean, as as a boy, I read about Henry Ford, and he was one of these role, like Horatio Elger. Thomas Edison. Tom, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Edison, another great. And there is, there is a... And they were buddies. Yes. <laughs> Ford and Edison. They were. Yeah. The douchebaggery continues. <laughs> um, Henry Ford was, uh, he was one of eight children. His father was an Irish immigrant. Um, who moved the family to Michigan. Um, just uh, They had a, a family farm uh, just outside of, of uh, Dearborn, Michigan, in fact. Henry was uh, one of eight kids. He was born on uh, July 30th, 1863, which is kind of interesting when you think of it, because at the time, you know, there were two presidents, one of the Confederacy, one of the Union. The Civil War mm-hmm. was still very much raging. Um in fact, July 30th must have been very close to, um, 1863 must have been fairly close to Gettysburg, I think. Wasn't it? 1864? I don't, doesn't, doesn't matter <laughs> in any case. But mm-hmm. it, he was, um... I haven't reenacted civil wars in a long time. No, there were... Secret wars, though. I don't know if you saw this, though. Um, oh, we should mention, we are coming from the heart of Scotty Nation in tropical Madison, Wisconsin. But yes, Memorial Day was just, you know, last 
weekend and they actually had we we have are choked by uh Civil War reenactors here in Wisconsin. I mean, you cannot swing a dead cat and not hit a Civil War reenactor. And anyways, case in in uh, in Madison, we have Camp Randall, which was at one time a Confederate prisoner of war camp, and they had this huge ceremony for all the um, Civil War unknown soldiers, and they had all these people in period costumes. It was just surreal. Wow, I didn't wow. know that. Missed yeah. that one. Yeah, it was just bizarre. <laughs> but the uh, I just uh, a few weeks ago I. I uh, saw the band the german art students and uh <laughs> they are great they're a great local indie rock band and they have a song called civil war reenactor oh, which yeah. is it's... just it, it's a great song in fact i think they mentioned it's available on itunes or you can buy their cd which is what i did and oh, uh cool. <clears throat> so just to just uh to stay off topic there well, uh, to learn about the beginning of Henry Ford's life. That's how we're tying it that's in. Right, right? That's right. <laughs> Civil War. Yeah that's, yeah, that's where we went. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, he, he lived a, a very bucolic uh, Midwestern existence. But he hated the farm. He hated the farm, yeah. But w- Which is interesting because that's kind of a bit of foreshadowing, which shows um, one of the many really huge ironies and paradoxes. Paradox would, I think, probably be the correct way of saying it in Henry Ford's life. Anyways, to continue, he did hate the farm, and he uh, walked <laughs> to Dearborn, and, uh, which was eight miles <laughs> away, you know, which is kind of funny when you think of Henry Ford going, well, uh, I guess I can't think of anywhere else how to get there. I guess I'm going to hoof it. He had a long time on those walks to think of faster so, ways of getting yeah. there. So blows. here we see his motivation. <laughs> so he worked in a machine shop for a while. And, uh, you know, there he came in contact with a, you know, com- internal combustion engine and and so on. And, and just kind of liked to to fart around, basically. And he, he worked part-time, um, um, you know, for the Westinghouse Engine Company which gave, you know, so essentially his job was to, um, but by this time he had returned to the farm and he just worked part-time for the Westinghouse Engine Company. And he, he worked and built like a, a little tractor for himself, you know, with, you know, had a steam engine and so forth. He, he did move back to, to uh, Detroit, though. Because it is, his mom died. I love the quote because his mom died in like 1876. And his dad expected him to stay on the farm and take over the farm and run the farm. And he said something like, I never loved the farm. I love the mother on the farm. Right. Yes. And, and then just that was kind of the end of his very close days. relationship. His father, I think, was a very strict disciplinarian, yeah. which I think Ford inherited a lot of that. But but yeah, his mother was he was very close. Then he moved off to Detroit to. Right. I'm sorry. I, I think I said before that he had walked to Dearborn. In fact, no, he had walked to Detroit yeah. when he was 16 to look for work in the machine shops. He moved back to the farm for a little while. And like I say, built that kind of steam tractor and so forth. He did move back to Detroit. He married. Um, this was nine years later, actually. So, I mean, he did spend a fair amount of, of, of time on that farm. Um, he was married in 1888, and in 1893, he had they had their only child, a son, Edsel Bryant. I I hope to God they called him Ed. I mean, because you know Edsel, that just blows. And and of course, here's you know that was the car that, um, I think Vista for Microsoft has changed that as becoming yet another name that 
I don't think will be used anytime soon to, yeah. for for an operating system. Right. But the Edsel mm-hmm. was this car that um, I actually found out a lot about it because there was a, a gentleman that uh, lived down the street from where I grew up that uh, collected and rebuilt them and and showed them at shows. So like every nut and bolt was, you know, museum yeah. perfect. This is the car that used the toilet seat as the front grill pretty much yes yeah. <laughs> um edsel enthusiasts call themselves horseshoers or the horseshoe, horseshoe club because they had this weird uh, horseshoe grill yeah, yeah and these cars i mean you they are like a boat pier they're so long <laughs> you know it's like a tucker you know to have an edsel would be really oh yeah awesome well the tucker yeah. though was actually a good piece of engineering right, the yeah. edsel was just yeah. this you know humongous yeah and it came out in 59 which was during right. the eisenhower recession and, you know, people were starting to kind of pull back from the excesses of the 50s. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, Ford totally not, you know, <laughs> linking up with this at all comes out. And here's the 59 Edsel. Well, look at the yeah. Ford right now where they're having to, oh, my gosh, you don't want SUVs and vans anymore? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> no. Duh. Uh, call me three yeah. years ago when we told you that. Yeah, no kidding. They, <laughs> they do seem to really have a problem staying contemporary, which, as we'll see, Henry himself had for many years. Exactly. Yeah. So anyways, um, to, to get back to it, nine years later, married man, went to Detroit, Had they had their son. Then, in 1891. <laughs> later that day, 1891. <laughs> he accepts a job with... <laughs> he became part of, of the Detroit Edson Company, which I think is funny in and of itself. Yeah. But um, he, he basically was like an IT guy. He had to keep the electricity up 24-7. But, you know, most of the time he could just fart around and he, he worked with, um, you know, he tinkered around in his machine shop that he set up. In any case, he he, he eventually created a um, quadricycle. So he, yeah. he made his own engine and he made this car that had four bicycle tires and, you know, could just kind of cruise it's around. It's the name Quadricycle. So the quad, but, quadricycle. But he had an er- internal combustion engine. Yes. Kind of tiller steering. Yes. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was like a joystick, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when he finished it, he realized the door to his uh, uh, machine shop was too small to fit the car through. So he took right. a sledgehammer and knocked uh, the side of the wall off. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, as we shall see, is Forward never daunted thinker. by reality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he got the car out, and he he, um, he eventually sold it, and I believe that person sold it to someone else. And, you know, they used it, and uh, Henry Ford kind of kept track of who had it. But later, there was uh, some patent lawsuits against the Ford Motor Company, and Henry Ford bought the quadricycle back to prove that he had prior art on these technologies. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Well, the thing that that, uh, chain, that was different about Henry, too, is that, uh, like, other people had made... Um, essentially horseless carriages. Or, yeah, he, or, that wasn't the first car. By no, 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 it wasn't the first yeah. car. But but the, what made Henry different was is that he would sell these and then use the money to finance another better car. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, other people would generally kind of hold on to them and, you know, they were more or less curiosities, but he wanted to kind of keep it moving. Yeah, he had the business sense. He, he Yes, he really kind of did all throughout his life, but it, like I say, the eccentricity and the business sense are kind of hard to draw that line sometimes, but you know, for the next seven years, he had a number of, you know, very wealthy backers, but um, they, they all kind of pulled away from him because he never was done 
tinkering with something. It was always like, well, I could I could make this a little bit better. I could improve this, and 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 they'd say, no, no, it's good enough. Just put it out there. And he's no, no, I want to keep working on it. So finally, they, you know, they just kind of pulled out. Um, he had built a lot of racing cars, including he had a very famous 999 racer that was raced by, you know, one of the the big racers at that time. Barney Oldfield. Barney Oldfield, the Dana Patrick of his time. What are you driving so fast? Are you Barney Oldfield? <laughs> I've seen some great pictures of him, too. And he's standing by these race cars that have these hard rubber tires. I mean, these cars are like as tall as SUVs are now. And that's what they would just be ripping around this track on. It's hilarious. Yeah, we did a great show on Burt Monroe, and, and Barney Oldfield is one of those Burt Monroe kind of characters. He <laughs> yeah. started out as a bicycle racer and yeah. then got that's hooked right. up with Ford, and he he drove the car like it was a motorcycle and kind of skidded the turns in order to keep his momentum going rather than braking, and it right. allowed him to get you know good time. And apparently he just kind of, before one of the first races figured out how to drive one of the cars because he'd been brought up to uh, one of the tracks, um, the, I think the Gross Point track, and the cars wouldn't start, so he didn't get a chance to even try them. <laughs> oh, no. And so then he decided to buy them from Ford, and Ford sold them to him, and then they worked on them, they fixed them up, they kept doing this stuff, and then, and then he started racing for them. Right. And and uh, this was actually the pattern that was followed by many great uh, auto manufacturers of the early 20th century is they really learned a lot about how to make a good car from the racing experience. Mm -hmm. uh, Enrico Ferrari, I guess, immediately leaps to mind. Mm -hmm. um, he really... Uh, uh, Toshiro Honda, another. I mean, they they really gained a lot of experience from the race circuit. Mercedes Benz, yeah, Ferdinand Porsche, Mer Mercedes. Or I it, should say Mercedes, not Mercedes Benz, but well, well, the the name Mercedes comes from a racer that um, whoever was the driver. It was his daughter's name was Mercedes. It was Mercedes? Yeah, it was yeah. actually Daimler Benz, I believe. But so Barney's yeah. Barney's or, car was the nine nine nine. Yes, and that was named after a, I think a train. That was yes, particularly. Well, I fast. mean, the car looked like a train. Yeah, really. it really let's, did. Let's be honest. It really did. And you know, later in life, Henry kind of disdained the whole racing thing. He he didn't think it was such a great part of his life, and didn't didn't take a lot of thrill out of the racing part. He was he was finally able to to market a car with uh, a twenty eight thousand in cash, which you know was a very princely sum at that time that he got from ordinary citizens. Um, because he and he he antagonized all all the people in Detroit who had any real money or backing, and and this is kind of funny because this is this is like the early Ford pattern where you can look at him as kind of this prairie populist, you know. So all these people yeah. who said, you know, Henry, I like the cut of your jib. You got the gumption to you know go out there. <laughs> yeah. So they give him this money, and you know off he goes. And uh, his company was actually very successful from the beginning. Although it wasn't uh, too long after that, the um, Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, and it's hard to believe that there were, was even a group like that since there was probably like, what, five <laughs> automobiles, but yeah. that they wanted to put him out of business because Ford wasn't a licensed manufacturer. He had been denied a, a license from the group, and, um, well, you know, like like most things, he, he bought his way around that. Um, because there was a um, this this group, their power was based on an 1895 patent. So essentially, cars were already patented, and you you had to apply to this group, which controlled okay. everything. So that's probably about 
time he bought the quadricycle back to him. Is that the patent fight that he had? That... <laughs> right, because the, the yeah. court hearings took six years Jeez. for for him to finally uh, win the case in 1909. And um, by this time, it, it again strengthened him as this popular hero. You know, here's this guy from the farm who's, you know, very Horatio Alger, rags to riches, and he's, you know, doing mm -hmm. all this. And then, of course, the the one of the phrases that they used in Ford commercials recently, which was, I will build a motor car for the multitude, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what he did. Right. You yeah. know, so he, instead of, uh, cars at this time were, were essentially art objects. And they stayed that way for, for a number of years, well into the 30s, and, and if not the 40s, where... Very wealthy people owned these cars. This was coach work. This was European coach work. This was not mm -hmm. an automobile that you would just buy from, from you know, a showroom or anything. So he was one yeah. of them that first said, no, if we build cars for everybody, this you're going to really have this huge market. Of course, you know, nobody could have foreseen that, that the building of this car and making it cheap enough for anyone to own how how universally it would change society mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. So so it was with the Model T, really. That the, the, yes, yeah, he, but that was not his first produced car. He actually, no. he actually did start out with the Model A, right? And uh, and and then he worked up through the alphabet. But a lot of those were uh, just prototypes, right? One offs. But I, again, I, he was always tinkering. And, yeah, and, and at the same but, time, he was starting to form this assembly line process of in house production, where everything is slowly going toward building everything in in-house by the same people yeah, which really took hold during the model t but right just right. for trivia if i got this right uh they, they did sell the model a the model b the model c f k n r s and then the t right and then after the t this is skipping ahead a bit <laughs> after the t he decided to start over so he built another model a but of course it's a. a whole new model a <laughs> Well, the Model so, U just doesn't have a good ring well, to it. Yeah, really. <laughs> yes, but there's actually another auto company that was selling a Model U. Mm. So, so there's oh, motivation not to confuse people as well. I see. I yeah. see. Well, the, of course, I think the thing that, that Henry Ford is, is most known for is, of course, the use and creation of the assembly line. And one of the things that he, that he did was is that uh, he you know, created the conveyor belt, which was essentially... Um, what Chicago meat packers they they would use these overhead trolleys in order to you know kind of bring the carcasses down to be cut and processed yeah. and so forth disassembly plants it's disassembly plants exactly <laughs> and and he uses and he he would compare it like you know a river and its tributaries and and all these parts coming together and so forth but of course that took a lot of trial and error to 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 get that going but the Model T was was an almost immediate hit because it. Um, well, in 1908, when it was introduced, it cost somewhere around $800 or right. 825 And he brought it down even more from there. So it was right. pretty astounding. He kept he lowering the price. Come to the market at that price. And because he was having the same people do the same thing, it was easy to keep the price down. Right. But, I mean, the car itself was, was really um, a masterpiece of simplicity. Mm-hmm. Because it, it had the it had a very high ground clearance, which was perfect for the roads of the time, or which let's were mud. say lack of roads. Yeah. Um and uh very easy to repair, very easy to maintain, hand crank starter, 
of course, you know, power nothing, mm-hmm. hydraulic nothing, and but you you could it was infinitely modifiable and useful for you know a variety of things, and it was well within yeah. the reach of most. Um, people. And the classic quote that I love is that uh, a customer can have a Model T in any color they like as long as it's black. That's right. Because black dried faster than any other color of paint. So he painted everything black. He could just keep rolling them <laughs> he off. He could keep rolling them off yeah. as now, quick. I, I believe I heard, uh, read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the first run of the Model Ts came in different colors. But as he built up the assembly line process, he, right. he changed them all to black. There was a lot of trial and error with the assembly line process, and it was not uh, a very safe process by any means. And it and it took a lot of uh, trial and error to get it to the point where I mean, it used to take all day to build a chassis or a car. But I mean, mm-hmm. they 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 just got it down to to a fraction of that. Mm-hmm. In, in yeah, order. it was roughly an hour and a half, I think, or something. Yeah, at their best time, they could get really? it. But you have to remember too, though, that th- this was just soul crushing, right. uh, tedium. Well, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> assembly lines now they 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 have kind of mm-hmm. you know thought about. I mean, there's this whole branch called industrial psychology where. You know, they try to think about mm-hmm. how to keep accidents down and how to keep, you know, your attention from wandering, just doing the same repetitious task. However, then it was literally like if you've ever seen Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, you know, where he's just sitting there with two wrenches and he's just tightening the same bolts right. all the time and he just can't stop mm-hmm. after a while. And, and and that's exactly what Metropolis it was. Metropolis has some yeah. of that, too. Oh, ex- yeah. Oh, very <laughs> much so. I, I have worked on assembly lines um but I guess the work wasn't that physically intensive. Right. It was actually making raid roach controllers. And so <laughs> roach hotels. <laughs> we'd have to drop the uh, the little poison pellet in the uh, little plastic container. Did you wear gloves? Uh, we did, but the uh, <laughs> the fingers work through. So by the time you're done at the end of your shift or whatever, you, your fingers are poking through the rubber gloves. You're serving a little DDT. This explains yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. or DEET, as they call it now, because that's deet. so friendly. Oh, DEET. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, but, I mean, you know, this is, where the, this is where the middle school textbooks really start to say, Henry Ford was the great, you know, American industrialist who created great wages, these great wages, because he did give the workers good wages to keep yes, them in did. those mind-numbing well, positions. Well, he, he was and... really getting hurt by the turnover. People would come mm-hmm. and do that job, and it's just so hard that they'd quit, and then they'd have to train someone else to, you know, screw the two bolts. And Yeah, so in 1914, so he, he offered that $5 a day wage. Yeah, he doubled the going rate. Right, because in 1913, his turnover was 380%. <laughs> right. I mean, and and people would just literally want these jobs. They would just hang around this plant, you know, because, oh, my God, this was a chance to really be part of something. But once they got in there, it's like, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. Mm -hmm. You know, you just had Mm -hmm. no longevity with doing that. So he came out with, of course, the the five dollar a day um, pay. But but before we get to that, I mean, the impact that that the Model T had was enormous and in fact we're still dealing with it today um this july they're projecting you know five dollar a gallon gas and mm-hmm. this is certainly i think one another one of henry ford's legacies that that certainly is carried on to this day but america at the time that the, the model t really hit was still largely rural and i mean just one of the the, the many impacts that it had was the agriculture I mean, the horse almost virtually disappeared overnight. 
So therefore, all the support industries that went along with, uh, you know, wagons and yeah. and and, we- and wheel rights and uh, just agriculture with with uh, the, amount of fields that had to be set aside for hay. You know, the the classic, uh, you know, business class example is is buggy whips. Right. And, uh, you know, don't get stuck making buggy whips when the the car comes around. That's right. Exactly. And I mean, just so then, you know, farmers could 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 have all these other crops that, you know, before they'd always have to set aside so much for hay just to to feed all the horses. And I mean, it was huge. People now had this incredibly wider range of of choices to to go to another city and start a new life or to um, your choice of, of a spouse now was incredibly extended because, you know, before it was always, you know, you married literally the girl next door because that's as far as you could get. Now you could yeah. get in your your tea and you could go somewhere and, you know, see what kind of women they had in the big city, <laughs> you know. So it, there was just a lot of things. But getting back to the $5 day, and, and here's where I think it starts to kind of go different. Mm-hmm. So up until then, you could say, and even with a $5 day, if you look at it, you think, oh, my God, what a populist. What a man of the people. Right. And he was even accused of being this mad socialist. Not so much. Um, the $5 a day wasn't really... I will give you five American dollars for a day's worth of work. It was actually that you had, you could participate in his profit sharing plan. But what that meant was, is that you had to come under the scrutiny of this, the Ford sociology department. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And that was not a yeah. pretty thing. This didn't last too long, but this is kind of where his path uh, branched with the uh, founder of the Oxford group, Frank Buckman. And oh, yeah. and Frank Buckman was, uh, you know, very strict, kind of religious person, and yes. uh, they gave him use of a giant hotel on uh, what Deer Island, right, uh, <clears throat> for a dollar a year. <laughs> he and his Oxford group or the rearmament movement could use this hotel for their uh, you know meetings and and talks. And the his sociology group was uh, intended to watch how the men were behaving at home and. You know, if they were ex- excessive drinkers or if they were deadbeat dads or. Right. Yeah. And wasn't it no smoking? No smoking. Um, Henry Ford had was. Uh, and, and here's one of the things that I should really stress is that he was. See, the, the Ford sociology department went a lot farther than that. though. Right. I mean, so the, so the basic thing was, is you would get five dollars a day if you were deemed, quote, worthy or would not debauch the additional money that the person received yeah, gambling <laughs> right gambling yeah. a ford ford was to say he was a straight arrow is just not hitting it <laughs> um he was a teetotaler his whole life did not gamble did not do i mean this guy uh square dancing that's that was a big night for henry you know <laughs> um but he, if the, the ford sociology department would um essentially go into people's homes pretty much, you know, at will and, and, uh, you know, view and take notes on everything from, uh, you know, uh, parenting style, sexual behavior, almost anything. And, and of course, at the time, many people thought that this was not really terribly intrusive. It was pretty new. <clears throat> right. And, and Ford, but Ford did a lot of things, but the sociology department went so much farther because... 
they were also doing things like, um, you know, going through the plants and, and looking in people's homes to see if they had anything that might be considered um, union material or or maybe, you know, too left of center. Bolshevik. Bolshevik. <laughs> and um, he, in the, in the 30s, in fact, he ended up cutting all their wages in half again. He was a famous so. union basher. He you, oh, yes. really didn't want workers to unionize. He, um, he, the department heads uh, of the sociology department uh, banned all talking and whistling while working was in progress. <laughs> um, Ford began to fire older workers in favor of younger workers. At this time, um, black hair dye became a very hot seller in the Detroit area. So these guys, these older guys were dyeing their hair black in order to, and of course, you know, other people were taking part in the Ford uh, profit sharing plan by, you know, essentially fooling the sociology department too. There's a lot of people were saying like, okay, yeah, we'll play along and you know, right. So, but yeah, Ford, Ford did not trust uh, unions in any way, shape or form. He thought they were just, well, I, I guess I guess there's it's it's, it's probably time to uh, start to delve into of, of one of Henry's greatest uh, um, issues, and that was of course Jews. Well, there were many issues of right. the Dearborn Independent. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> many many issues. Henry Ford, he also published a newspaper. Henry Ford about this time, you know, everything was really taking off, and he had a lot of uh, a lot of people were you know, asking his opinion and kind of looking up to him and so forth. He had bought this uh, kind of broken down newspaper called the Dearborn Independent. And he used this as a platform to rail against many things, but uh, probably the chief thing was uh, Jews. Uh, Henry Ford was incredibly anti-Semitic. Now, it's true that anti-Semitism in the Midwest at this period of time, or even worldwide, worldwide. was not something that was terribly unique. Um, but I think that it could be definitely said that Henry Ford, because of his position and money and authority, uh, he definitely had it in spades. I mean, he, he was very, very anti-Semitic. Let me just point yeah. out, when did the Dearborn Independence start? 1920? Oh, about 1918, about 1918, actually, yeah. So let me just say that Ford's vagabonds would take a yearly camping trip mm -hmm. starting around 1918 until 1924. Right. And they would go on this big, giant camping uh, car trip with newspapers following them. The vagabonds were basically John Burroughs, Harvey Firestone, yes. and Thomas Edison. Another great douchebag. Another, and actually, Harvey Firestone is a great douchebag in some of it, but we, we digress. So the we'll whole cover time, him later. The whole time <laughs> that uh, Henry Ford's coming up with this and publishing these Dearborn Independent newsletters, they're going on these Ford Vagabonds camping outings, right? You know, which which brought their own cooking staff, chauffeurs, and right <laughs> kitchen <Yeah>. trucks. You know, <laughs> nobody's this, pumping this up the Coleman here. This you wasn't know? camping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I thought it was funny that it coincided really closely with the publishing of the Dearborn Independent. But anyway, well, the Dearborn Independent was this it was this paper that, um, you know, w was essentially there to, you know, print all the things that, you know, aren't really being talked about. And and one of the things that Henry thought was not being talked about was uh, the international Jewish conspiracy, uh, which was just essentially that 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 Jews 
were not just a ethnicity or a religion, but that they were this conspiracy that was out there to take over the world through banking and war and, you know, who knows what. Well, and there were, what, 91 articles or something about, yes. you know, that, that composed this international Jew, which has been kind of thrown together in, in a lot of Nazi textbooks, basically. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. it's still floating around the Internet today. Well, and, and in, in effect, too, Henry Ford, but again, this is also true of a lot of American industrialists mm-hmm. at this time of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but Henry Ford was a very early financial supporter of the National Socialist Party in right. Germany. And in fact, Hitler had a photo of Henry Ford in his office. Well, yeah, and he, Hitler also said at one time that I, I don't remember the exact. Quote, I regard said, Henry Ford yeah. as my inspiration. <laughs> exactly, said right. Adolf Hitler. Said Adolf Hitler. <laughs> right. So, and, I, and and there are parts of Mein Kampf that some people are saying are direct translations of the International Jew, just written in Mein Kampf. Oh yes. So well, and and he also published a book, you know, the uh, um, the International Jew, which was and, and the Protocols of the Elder Zion. Which, of course, if our, if our listeners aren't aware of this, is, is uh, was this uh, czarist ploy mm-hmm. of which it, it keeps being printed and reprinted and used as this um, textbook. Uh, and now in, it's being it's being reprinted in the Middle East and circulated. And all it is is just this this thing where. Um, you know, all these elder Jews meet in a in a graveyard and and plot the downfall of everything not Jewish and, you know, use the blood of Christian babies. And I have a feeling that as long as we have the Bible, I mean, as long as we have textbooks that are this old, that people are still oh. following, this is going to be one of those texts that's going to be around uh, propping up conspiracy theory th- through all of time. Right. <laughs> you know, it'll just yeah, be there. It's, it's too good you, of a conspiracy you, theory you can, to throw away. You can tie well, it to we've the Illuminati. We've talked about conspiracy it Conspiracy theories don't really die. They just kind of They're morph. rediscovered. They're re-engineered. Yeah, yeah exactly. more interesting. And the international Jew has not ever disappeared, even though at times no. I think he would have liked it to have disappeared. Right. Well, the Ku Klux Klan actually collected a lot of the articles from the Dearborn Independent mm-hmm. and kind of published them as this, you know, greatest hits of Henry Ford. Right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know and, and it's like it is very likely that Henry Ford didn't actually pen these articles, but it was the work of his underling. But you, right. you know that he was completely complicit and involved he yes he had i mean i i think you could right. say that he was uh like hitler in the holocaust certainly a guiding force <laughs> certainly involved in some way <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. i'm not i can't say that you were totally involved <laughs> yeah, to hit that topic over and over and over again the staff is getting some direction for sure right oh exactly and um you know what what was also interesting too is that he um you know, he was sued, of course, um, uh, by this uh, gentleman uh, by the name of Aaron Sapiro, right, uh, in the early 30s. And he had evidence that, that you know, uh, Ford had threatened him with these, you know, that he was threatened by these anti-Semitic uh, articles that was written. Uh, Ford was recorded as saying, Sapiro is a shrewd little Jew. The Bible says Jews will return to Palestine, but they will want to get all the money out of America first. Sapiro should be kicked out because he is trash. The result of the trial was, of course, you know, it was totally humiliating for the Ford company. He did apologize and so forth, kind of, but it it did really tarnish his reputation. And and, and many say that he didn't really recover from that either. Right, and it made him back off from the Dearborn 
Right, right. I think he probably would have continued with that, mm-hmm. um, but but certainly, you know, like I say, you there were there were many um, industrial American industrial leaders that just thought what Harry Hitler was doing was keen. Well, and they were they were throwing a lot of financial support that direction, and they were also uh, forming their own factories over there in Germany. So Ford right. Works mm-hmm. was formed, you know, right. and IBM did did some work over there, and Standard Oil, Dupont. There were a lot of corporations moving over there because under a regime like that, you didn't have to deal with labor laws and unions no. and any of that. <laughs> yeah, those silly labor unions. You had your beaten down workforce that would do whatever you wanted, basically. Right. And so they were making massive profits in Germany. And they were doing that Very all true. the way into the run up to World War II. Uh, you know, which is mm-hmm. fairly contradictory for his take on World War One, where he was kind of a peacenik and uh, portrayed as almost socialist in his non-support of World War One. Right. But uh, as you get up to that's an interesting point, though, Victor. I mean, because because that was, again, kind of that that early later shift where you can almost like draw this line down his life. I mean, he was one of these guys in World War One that um, chartered the peace ship mm-hmm. and, and went over there to try to moderate yeah. what was going on and so forth. But really, it was kind of the sheer arrogance and egotism on his part because he was thinking, well, I'm Henry Ford and I'm here to talk turkey. And everyone was like. But wasn't one of the whole points of his getting ejected from that trip or deciding to quit that trip was because he thought the Jews were behind it all? Yes. <laughs> so the sinking of the. <laughs> That's where that's where the you know the Howard Hughesish element started. I think kind of surfaced quite a bit. Yeah, and he was he's kind of made a laughing stock as part of that uh, Swedish uh, brigade or whatever it was called. That's right. And uh, yeah, so he did go on to he won the highest foreign award that you can win in in Germany. Yes, he the, he won a very high medal of uh, um I I don't recall what the exact but it was yeah. yes the highest civilian and there's a, I've actually seen a picture of it and it's just like festooned with <laughs> you know Reich eagles and swastikas and and so forth so there but. were some embargoes in place and there were some things in place trying to uh, discourage people from outwardly supporting Hitler and right. while Hitler was positioning himself to attack. You know, Eastern Europe. A lot of people were hoping he'd wipe out the communists, right? And so they were they were kind of backdoor supporting him through separate organizations. And there was some money funneling that's been traced, and people have followed where the money went. But it, it basically shows that Henry Ford was making a ton of money in America, but he was making a lot more in Germany, and all the way up till World War II started. And right. they were supplying him with. The, the rubber and the oil and the steel and the, the partially right. completed frameworks that would get finished for, for tanks in Germany, and mm-hmm. they would be used on the Eastern Front. And when they started warring, uh, going more toward England, right. Ford was perfectly happy with that because then he would supply arms and weapons to both England and Germany. So he was making money on both fronts that way as well. Oh, right. I mean, well, the, the name of that metal was it's the... very uh, Ferengi. <laughs> it is very, very Ferengi. He's a Ferengi. Well, yeah, you could... <laughs> although I don't think he was honestly a greedy person, but he was definitely... The name of that was the Grand Cross of the German Eagle. The Grand Cross. Yeah, and it's quite an impressive... Um, you know, not unlike uh, Lindbergh, there was another one who right. thought the Nazis were quite keen. But what I found really astounding about that whole track is then then Japan attacked America, and basically right. America declared war on Japan. And then 
And then Hitler decided at that point that he would declare war on America, hoping then probably that Japan would then declare war on Russia because his Russian front wasn't very successful. It wasn't working really well. Right. But what happened actually then was America declared war on uh, Germany and, and it all finally broke out. But during the entirety of World War II, Ford Works remained in operation. Right. And uh, Robert Schmidt, I believe, was the name of the German operator, mm-hmm. answered directly to Henry Ford. And and they still got parts mm-hmm. through Switzerland, which in Switzerland, too. I mean, the whole thing about Swiss neutrality is is bullshit because, I mean, their neutrality is very carefully balanced, working with all sides. Right, right. So there's yeah. probably a lot of gold that's it, got a lot of swastikas on it stuck in those. Places. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's n- neutral as to maximize profit. Exactly. exactly. And it, what's pretty funny is that uh, Ford supported anyone basically except the Russians. Right. And, and Ford also, there's this whole lender agreement uh, where they took credit for winning the war basically by providing these lender agreements to Russia. Well, those lender agreements were in place in Germany and in England far before the Russian front was even uh, even defeated the Germans the first time. That's right. So the whole idea that, that Henry Ford helped win World War II, he really just wanted it to go on as long as it could. And whoever won, he was going to profit from no matter what. Well, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, um, they had Schindler's List on the network TV, and it was brought with, by Ford. By Ford, uninterrupted, wow. uninterrupted. So, so Schindler's List brought to you by Ford, uninterrupted, has many levels to it. There's so many levels of irony. <laughs> so many levels. And all right, then let me take it to the next step. Well, it literally was brought to you by brought Ford. To you by I mean, Ford. The original, literally, the original. <laughs> Thank you so much, Henry. <laughs> Reenactment here. But uh, then, when the war actually ended. And by the way, he made a lot more money in France because France was cooperative. The Ford plants in France made a lot more money than even in Germany or or he was making England. But when the war ended and the reconstruction was discussed, there were a lot of plans. Like one of the early plans was to reduce the industrialization of uh, Germany to nothing. And Ford hated that idea. (laughs) Right. And they wanted it to just go to an agrarian society. And that got shelved um, very quickly. But uh, once they decided to move ahead and, and work on reparations and rebuilding the industrial economy, Ford immediately, along with a lot of other American uh, industrialists, said, well, we need damages for our plants that were destroyed in the war. So he received damages from America for America's attacks on Germany <laughs> for his plants. Oh, man. Oh, you got to love that. I know. It was you got to love that. That takes just iron balls of... <laughs> Unbelievable! Yeah, Unbelievable! Nuts. There was there was a there was a very famous quote uh, by uh, one of Ford's contemporaries who called him an ignorant genius. <laughs> you know, because it was he would say these things like history is more or less bunk. You know, and, and just will like pay no attention to it, and then just kind of go on and and you know make it in his own sort of weird image. But you know, the thing was is that you know he was an incredibly wealthy man uh, during his lifetime. The Ford Motor Company. We should also mention, too, I think, that um, he created this almost Willy Wonka-esque factory, mm-hmm. the River Rouge plant. Now, because of another lesson that he got from World War One, besides the huge ridicule of the pea ship and so <laughs> forth, was all the things that he needed for his plants, which he could not get because war was, you know, taking it away from him. So the River Rouge plant literally 
made Ford Global. So they had plants, you know, in Brazil to get the rubber. They had, you know, ore mines all over. So they would, they would actually, he bought a railroad. He, he did all these things. So this plant literally pulled all the elements in. He said that he would start, it would start costing him things the minute that the elements for his cars were removed from the earth until they got to the customer. And that's how he saw the world. So wow. anything that it took to build a Model T, which was in operation for well over 20 years until finally his son Edsel said, you know, Dad, for the love of God, yeah. we got to at least paint it a different color. Yeah. But... 1908 to 1927. I mean, that's a hell of a run <laughs> that for a model. That is a huge run for uh -huh. the same model. But it, it, didn't, it did not change that much. I Chevy mean, was gunning for him at that time because they had different cars and different colors. Do you know where the Chevy bow tie comes from? Mm-hmm. Um, Gaston Chevrolet saw it was wallpaper in his hotel room in Paris. <laughs> was that weird little bow tie? And he just said, "Damn, I like that." And, and I never he, liked the Chevy bow tie. You never liked the bow tie? No, it just looked, yeah. I don't know. It, there is something classic about the Ford emblem. I I should you know I guess I you'd have to say it's it has this very yeah know, turn of the century look to it. <laughs> Not unlike I, the People's Wagon. Oh yes, which of the course I Volkswagen. I'm a huge yes. fan of. Yeah, I like the Volkswagen emblem. But I do too. That's given the time I grew up. I mean, the Chevys at that time were pretty cruddy in the '70s. But, but the, the yeah. River Rouge plant was interesting because, again, you know, these trains would pull up with just enough ore for the day. I mean, literally, they would make the steel and hmm. everything that you needed to make a car. So that's they. He was truly worldwide long before, and this was an incredibly yep. short period of time. What's interesting is, uh, and like I say, his plant and his company, his corporation, was never audited, never, you know, taxed in any realistic why? way. Well, there was, there he was must have paid us. He didn't really use accountants. No, he just. In kinda... fact, a direct quote of of his is that um, he he loathed accountants. He said that. Um, that uh, I want them all fired. They're not productive. They don't do any real work. Get them out of here today. <laughs> <laughs> now, he was always the head of Ford Motor Company, and there were a few times where uh, Edsel took over. Right. Honorarily, basically, and, you know, in the, in the thoughts that he would transition after Henry died. But Edsel actually ended up getting cancer and dying in, I believe, 1945. Right. So he actually proceeded. Um, Henry uh, himself died on April 7th, 1947, which was uh, weirdly exactly 100 years to the day that his father brought the family over front to Dearborn from Ireland. Mm. So it's kind of mm. kind of unusual in itself. But he, he took all of his holdings in Ford stock and put them in the Ford Foundation. So that the family always retained control of the company, which it retains to this day, and it became the richest private foundation in the world. So, I mean, even then, even then mm -hmm. when he was a corpse, he was thinking. A very mm -hmm. bizarre legacy all the way around because the car has been one of these things that has defined American culture and I believe still defines American culture around the world. Mm -hmm. The Chinese now— At least now, for another few months. <laughs> yeah, for, right, exactly. I, I don't know about you guys, but I am on that bicycle as much as I humanly can. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it takes 40 bucks for me to fill up the Action Beetle now, and I, that's just unheard of. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a little car. That's a tiny car. Yeah. I, I have been looking at minis and smart cars. 
I, I got a chance to get up close to a smart car, and I was just all over that. I saw Mini Wagon the other day. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I didn't even so know they made it's, it's like oh. small but bigger. Did you guys see that they made a wienermobile out of a yellow mini? It's a a, no. a mini wiener. Oh, it's wow. so cool. I saw two vehicles that I thought were super cool. One is Volkswagen has their 200 mile 200 plus mile per gallon vehicle, mm-hmm. which is a one person capsule four-wheel drive. Uh, or four-wheel vehicle. I yes. Mean, it looks uh-huh. like a little bullet that you're driving down the road. Which and, is cool. Wow. Oh, it's just fascinating. And then Yamaha has a concept Segway-type motorcycle, which is you stand in it, and you oh, put your arms yeah, on the, the two front wheels, and you stand on the rear wheels, and the helmet goes over your head, and then you rotate it forward. Iron Man. And you kind wow. of you kind of roll <laughs> you roll on it with your front arms nice. at the front wheels and your, your feet at the back wheels, and it just looks... Like something out of an Akira, <laughs> you know, out of the movie Akira. It's very fascinating stuff. But back to Nazi Germany, what is the name of the bank that Prescott Bush worked with? Because oh, the grandfather of George right. W. Bush was also one of the industrialists yes. who hugely backed Nazi Germany. Yes, you're right. You're right. I mean, that that was all tied in. Yeah, and there is, a lot of th- cash. there is a Prescott Bush Ford connection. Shoot, I forget exactly how it goes. It's, it's kind of... Loose. I mean, it's not. He wasn't a Ford vagabond. Yeah, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah, but he's definitely kind of cut from the same cloth there. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I mean, his sociology department is infamous. I mean, you know, before if 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 a worker had union sympathies, they got fired. Well, he was he was the last he was the last uh, major corporation to accept. The Union of Auto yes, Workers. Yes. So for like the, like the Boston Red Sox, like the last African Americans. It's like, yeah, the curse of the babe. No, I don't think so. But. And he hired he hired giant strike busters, thugs, basically to break up protests and yes. strikes and anything that that looked. He did hire a lot of criminals too, mm-hmm. which was also like a weird policy that was copied and so forth. But again, for it someone was, who was pushing social morality. Yeah, to the but he thought yeah. he thought he could pull like everybody. In fact, yeah. Henry Ford and his sociology department was—I uh, mean, they that whole teetotaling, kind of social engineering controlling attitude—I think had a lot to do with the uh, you know Halt Volstead Act, you know, the prohibition in 1919. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's. If we give money to these immigrants and and their drinking culture and everything, we've got to make them good, solid Americans. Now. What's interesting is, is again, one of the big paradoxes of Henry Ford's personality is that he created on his estate uh, pretty much a exact, you know, nail by nail, board by board uh, replica of of his family farm and uh, the town that he grew up in of the 19th century. And he would just wander by himself there at night, you know, kind of... Um, you know, yearning for this world that he himself literally helped completely destroy by by building the the Ford mm-hmm. Model T. <laughs> so I mean, he 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 has nothing if not a consistent paradox. So there's this early populist mm-hmm. Ford, or seemingly populist. He also supported. Um, he hated to, to be in the public eye in any way, but he came out for Herbert Hoover and campaigned for him in '32. And of course, you know. There was a landslide, uh, you know, with F- FDR's first um, administration. Well, he ran for the Senate uh, in 1918 as a Democrat, right? Uh, and lost. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. Not surprised as a Democrat, but wow. <laughs> but 
It yeah. reminds me of the the sociologist Max uh, Horkheimer, who said, if one wants to talk about fascism, one cannot remain silent about capitalism. And right. I would say when talking mm-hmm. about Ford, if one wants to talk about capitalism, one cannot remain silent about fascism. <laughs> right, right. he was an incredible fascist. Yeah, I mean, people have used, you know, euphemisms like, well, he was paternalistic. Like, he would he, he would hire criminals because he wanted to. But, I mean, he looked like at everybody as kind of a criminal. You know, immigrants, whatever. So you had to have this, this you know, complete Protestant work ethic. Otherwise, you were not worthy of of being an American. And it was just he was this creature of another century that, he, you know, he completely undermined all the things that 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 stood for in a lot of ways. But mm-hmm. and, and then, you know, was a peace activist in the First World War, but then essentially funded, you know, the one of the major causes of the Second World War and then. Um, because of the deprivations that he felt to his industry created this, you know, huge plant that was nothing except one huge human industrial machine. So I don't know. He's a real people person. He a real people person, (laughs) but definitely deserving uh, to be in Tank Wright's uh, douchebag hall of fame. Yeah. So we'll, we'll start that web page up right away <laughs> we gotta have our douchebag hall of fame if you have any suggestions for people living or dead who you think are great douchebags members of tank riot or not <laughs> that's right email yeah. us at feedback at tankriot.com. absolutely yeah uh well ford's uh his way of thinking his way of building his plant treating his employees right uh writing his dearborn independent was pretty influent Influential, and it influenced uh, Aldous Huxley to write Brave New World. So did Hoffman. Hoff- yes. <laughs> yeah. <Ooh. laughs> Props to the Hoff. Yeah, the Hoff. <laughs> now deceased. But you're right, okay. Aldous Huxley, in, in the world that he was talking about, right. with, with people being, uh, alcohol being put into their de- uh, decanters. Here, yeah. here. You know? So they can be kind of a, a more... Th- you know, a, a, more of a simpleton and be good for assembly line work. Right. Yeah. An epsilon or perhaps a gamma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this book, Brave New World, it takes place, I don't know, roughly 500 years in the future. Sure. And, uh, and they're, they're just, they practically worship Henry Ford. The, yeah. The, they consider the, the day Henry Ford released the Model T as this, you know, almost their greatest holiday and uh <laughs> and you know those sort of blessed things with the sign of the t and they uh my ford yeah my, my ford, ford. And, and to speak to someone who, of high authority you say uh, well my ford ship and uh <laughs> so that's all these uh, it, uh fordisms and that kind of thing and huxley just took what he saw what ford was doing and kind of extrapolated it and threw it into the future, and uh, so it's it's you know the guy just made cars, but he's like having this huge influence he into on everything on, on social engineering and yeah, exactly. everything. Yeah, so that was and and well, Fordism. You also hear that in the context of uh, referring to his kind of business model or the way he did the manufacturing, the way the assembly line was, the way you. Uh, you know all the things we talked about w- with the uh, making it efficient and and that sort of thing. Right. 
And so. and I mean, he had a very 19th century view of the world, but had this product that was incredibly 20th century and changing mm-hmm. culture and in ways that he could never possibly anticipate or control, which is, I think, one of the things that I think if Henry Ford could have seen even 10 years into the future past his death, he would have been horrified. You know, by by everything that he had seen that the the car had had brought forth. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just kind of take him about twenty years in the future and show him hippies. Oh God! Oh God! I <laughs> know <laughs> that's oh he would have just exploded. <laughs> well, and, and in fact, yeah, the Volkswagen, the people's car, which of course the hippies' choice for you know vehicles. I mean, yeah, that... well, I mean Hitler. Probably, I assume Goethe's idea was heavily influenced by Ford. He mentioned that, yeah, Hitler was. That's when he invented that whole assembly line to create the Volkswagen and a lot of the other vehicles. The The K car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. So we have one piece of viewer mail I'd like to mention. Johnny Lee writes us that uh, he wanted us to know, if we haven't heard already, that Modern Marvels is ripping us off and did an episode on Nikola Tesla. They included a section on Tesla versus Edison the bonus and World's Fair energy bid as well. So wow. if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's history.com slash shows. You can find it. But we also have a much better version of it that they obviously ripped off. There was also a very good Mythbusters on the other uh, the other day uh, that was dealing with Tesla's earthquake machine, mm-hmm. which was very fascinating. <laughs> so Is that the one where they're shaking the bridge? Yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of like this thing that just kind of keeps repeating, and it finally almost like changes yeah, the whole molecular structure. Yeah, it gets structure. it at the resonant frequency. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah it was it's quite good. Yeah, I, I I enjoyed that episode. I, too. I love MythBusters. Anyways, it's one of my favorite shows. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I read on the internet that the um, the book Ragtime had has uh, uses Henry Ford as a fictional character. Oh in, in yeah, it. that's right. Um, so. so Instead of reading the book, I rented the movie, but I think they left him out of the movie. However, a Model T does uh, play prominently. Yes, it figures heavily into the. Yes, yes. So, So, I went on the internet to find some Dearborn Independent and ended up on some very, very scary right wing. Uh, anti-Semitic oh, yeah. websites that that very clearly state their opinions, and wow, Henry's kind of uh, <laughs> yeah, he's... it was a touchstone. <laughs> yeah, he's like I don't know. A lot of us probably have that kind of embarrassing relative that says things that. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. yes, we, <laughs> like, yeah. I had to wash uh, my eyeballs uh, after yeah. reading some of those websites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. Oh, and I want to say to the viewer that we are awarding the prizes for for uh, our Twilight Zone show. Um, we finally have a uh, gift pack already, and uh, please look for it soon. So if you have yeah. so many ideas for uh, future shows. We've gotten some wonderful ideas already. We do. They're in our yeah. hat, the official Tank Riot idea <laughs> hat. Um, please let us know at, at feedback at tankriot.com. Until then, uh, good night and good day. I'd rather push a Ford than drive a Chevy. <laughs> oh yeah, we we can't found on road dead. Fix or repair, repair daily. daily. Yeah. Fix or repair <laughs> daily. <laughs> my dad had a Ford, then he got a job. <laughs> my my family's had a, a couple Fords, actually more than that, but two of them, uh, two Fords with four engines. <laughs> oh <laughs> damn. <laughs> I bet you that wasn't assembly line. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just... Uh.